here we are. I'm in a hotel room with Michael Burke from Cordoba Bay, amongst other things. Is that the correct? I know you have many functions, but you, you run a record company, Cordoba Bay. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And you also are in the IT field. I, I've programmed and done uh, research and development and um, run many projects and built products and sold them in companies. And I remember, if I remember correctly, last year when I saw you, you were telling me about apps that you had created for bands, and you were yes. very, very excited about that. Yes. So you're obviously a technical geek, is that correct? Uh, I would say that was probably pretty true. What came first, the the IT world or the music world? Well, it's kind of odd. When I was 13, um, I started doing two things. I started playing clarinet, and I started programming, but it wasn't really programming. Um, that was 1964. Nobody knew what a computer was. Um, and, uh, and so a friend of mine and myself uh, found a book in the library with a hypothetical computer language in binary. And we would write program. I would write a program, and he would be the computer to run it. Then he would write a program, and I'd be the computer to run it. And that's how we started programming. And that, wow. was like, that was So music and computer programming, basically the same year. And the clarinet was just a school band, or is that the love of the clarinet? My uncle played clarinet, and um, and I was going to junior high school, and uh, I was put in band class, and um, they said, "What would you like?" And I said, "Hey, clarinet. My uncle has one." Yeah. So I played clarinet, and then I got when I was fourteen, I got one, and then later on, I started playing saxophone and played all you know the three main saxes, um, and then uh, when I was seventeen, I was in a band playing drums and uh uh yeah so i did a, a bunch of things like i even i even was in a little combo where i played you know my three chords on a guitar um it was all three of them usually uh sometimes you know for diversion we'd only play two and uh, uh the only thing i never did was sing and which you will be doing later on today Yes, yes, I will be singing later on today. Yeah. So, I know you from your record company. How did you get into becoming an owner of a record company? Uh, well, when I was um, well through high, junior high school and high school, I was doing both uh, computer programming and um, and music. Um, and when I was seventeen, eighteen, when I was in grade thirteen. Uh, I actually was teaching uh, at the high school I was at, uh, programming. Uh, hmm. And they let me park in the teacher's parking lot, but they didn't pay me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and I was always interested in the two together. So um, was this like COBOL programming? Is that... uh, back in those days, it was mostly Fortran programming. Okay. Um, and I also got into doing assembler programming for the IBM 1130 which was the sister little tiny computer uh, that only took up a small room um, from the IBM 360s, but it was the same basic architecture, but it was a 16-bit uh, processor rather than a 32-bit, which the 360 was. So you were doing programming yes. way back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. that you're old or anything, but... I am. <laughs> I'm old. And, uh, and at the same time... Um, I had a lot of friends who played music, you know. In fact, my the bulk of my friends were musicians, 
I would say. And, um, and I, I'm not a stupid person. It takes me a while to catch on, but um, I'm not stupid. So I did actually figure out my friends are better musicians than I am. <laughs> and so I started managing them. And so, and, and doing production. And so I connected up with uh, a couple of brothers in Ancaster, Ontario, and um, took people down there and recorded stuff for years. Um, recorded in their two-track recording studio, their four-track, their eight-track, and their 16-track studios. And this would be mainly singles or albums? Uh, this was, um, probably did about three albums, but a bunch of singles as well, different genres. And of course, that was the Lanois brothers. And so um, my schooling was, you know, Bob and Dan Lanois. They started off with a two-track studio in their mother's basement. Mm -hmm. And then that grew to four-track in their mother's basement and even an eight-track in their mother's basement. And um, I think we just did demos and things with a two- and four-track. Um, and then when they got the eight-track, wow, we did, I think we did an album. Um, and we couldn't get over the fact that Sgt. Pepper was recorded on a four-track. Mm -hmm. um, and here we were saying we're wasting stuff on our eight-track, you know, so it was pretty crazy. Um, and then the, then they moved to Grant Avenue in Hamilton, and uh, that's when they started the 16-track. And they were just doing production. And Dan, of course, was uh, a sought-after um, musician, and he was playing with uh, Sylvia Tyson and... Uh, I think he was involved with the production. Uh, he, he may have actually, he was the engineer at least, but maybe produced uh, um, produced um, Ray Materic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, best friend, best friend overnight, and Linda put the coffee on and all that stuff. Actually, Ray Materic just moved to the island. He's uh, living in Duncan now, I think. A, a lot of people uh, from here. in Vancouver Island. For those Vancouver people. Island, yes. Uh, the island bond. And... Uh, uh, you know, Eugene Smith is out there now. and I mean, it is all, it's, it's incredible. Uh, uh, Stephen Faring just moved out. So at this point, you're producing albums. And what are you thinking? That you will become a big record guy? Uh, no, no, no. Just, hey, this is great. Uh, you know, went down and recorded some stuff in Fanshawe, which is still going, which is a great place. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and I started getting, like, I started negotiating deals for artists and lots of stories there. Um, sure. Uh, did some stuff at um, Thunder Sound. Uh, used to be on, I think it was on DuPont. Mm -hmm. Was it DuPont or Davenport? Anyway, one of those we, two. We They're all gone. Everything's gone now. Uh, I, had a, I had a partner in a, in a company called Silver Bullet Productions, Alan Checkman, and he was running Sounds Interchange and Interchange Records. And uh, anyway, there's just a lot, there's a lot of stuff. But through that all, um, I, not through my own, there was, there was a real hassle. I was going to go to university at uh, Queen's University in Belfast. And uh, my grandmother had a house on the campus and she wrote to tell me that I couldn't stay in her house. Because? <clears throat> because this is the days of the Troubles. And um, that area where she lived in Queens University was called the Market, and that was like right in the thick of the Troubles. And she figured that growing up in Canada, uh, I wouldn't be able to handle myself in a social 
environment in the tinderbox that Belfast was. Hmm. And so she was, you know, she was honestly worried about my safety. But it was very hard because I had, I was classified as a foreign student, and so I had to prepay. And I had to pay things like, you know, stupid things like uh, library fees. And I was, it just was, anyway, I, was, I, was, I worked my way through high school working in a bakery. And uh, I kind of got all the money together to do this. And so, anyway, I took the last of my money and uh, bought an airline ticket for my grandmother to come over to Canada for the summer. And she had a great time. And uh, it, was, it was a wonderful bonding time. And she was going home in September. And she said, oh, by the way, you still can't come. <laughs> so much for that plan. <laughs> so here I was with uh, nowhere to go and school starting. So uh, I went to a... I think called Control Data Institute, which was a, an educational arm of the world's largest computer manufacturer at the time called Control Data. And they were in Willowdale. And it was like a walk from Don Mills. And, um, and so I started, I, I just went there for six months on a programming thing. Um, and I stopped going in the last, I didn't go for the last month. And instead went out looking for a job. And I was the only one in the class with a job at the end of it. Because um, you had a month ahead. Yeah working for Simpson Sears uh, on Mutual Street, on Jarvis, right. you know, the inverted pyramid yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so I, I, was, I was making more money than I'd ever had before, and, um, and we're doing the music and doing that on the weekends and evenings. And, um, and I kind of just sort of did the two of them for my life, you know, just one, you know, it's hardly, you could hardly separate when I was doing music and when I was doing computers. At Control Data Institute, they had uh, a CDC 3600, or a 3200, I guess it was. And I discovered that um, the main console had uh, a speaker in it. And uh, when the people came in, the CEs, the customer engineers came in to do their diagnostics, they started up a program. And every time it passed one of the phases, it would go beep. And so I mapped it out so I could play like an octave on this. <laughs> <laughs> by because because you got the beat by by anding and oaring um, bits into the lower half of one of the registers in the computer. This is probably boring geek stuff. I'm sorry. You can cut this all out. You can cut this. This this all just can go. But you, you know, so picking a frequency and anding and oaring them in, you got a note. Well, I think if you're a programmer, automatically you kind of fall into the geeky kind of thing, right? Like yeah. I mean, people don't talk about it anymore, but. No, I guess. But it's well back in. I mean, now when you go to do something, somebody's already done it. Right. And, there's apps um, for that. There's apps for that. Yeah. And you know, what I was doing this stuff, you know, people were like, "You're doing what?" Um, and you know, nobody understood. There was no, there were no frameworks. There were no, uh, there was no uh, support material. It was all kind of, you know, seat your pants stuff. And, and and we had a line printer, and the line printer was uh, went up to two thousand lines per minute, and it's like a rivet gun. And basically, it lines up all the, the heads, and it just goes, dut, 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 and it's printing a line of 132 characters. But I discovered that the processor for the printer um, had a fixed speed, so it went faster for short lines <laughs> and slower for long lines as it was composing them. So I would uh, vary the uh, speed of the printer to give some rhythm. <laughs> So, it's all musically based. <laughs> this is this is a this is basically what you would call a scientific supercomputer, and I was using it 
to make noises and sounds. <laughs> so how did that lead into owning a record company or starting a record company? Uh, well, um, uh, during this time, um, I was working with a band called Quarrington Worthy, uh, Paul Quarrington and Martin Worthy. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I put together a little production company and... Uh, you know, being Michael Burke, it was really hard to get by in the industry. People sort of, what, Burke, right? So anyway, um, we, called, we called this production company Quirk, and we called it um, uh, Q-Triple-U, and so it was actually the Q-W and then Irk from Burke. So it was Q-W-U-R-K-E, so we, so we called it Quirk with Q-Triple-U. Uh, <laughs> um, was, everything was done for a laugh. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, we got a logo made up and stuff, and I, I put out a, a single or two. Um, and I was managing Quarrington Worthy, and I was also managing a band called Joe Hall and the Continental Drift, which was actually quite well known at the time. Um, touring across Canada, used to come to Victoria, uh, used to go to Victoria at least twice a year and play at Harpo's. And... Um, uh, we were doing productions for them and um, doing live uh, uh, live uh, sound reinforcement and had a sound system and all that kind of stuff. And um, we put out some records uh, through Harvey Glatz. Uh, you know Harvey Glatt? No. Harvey Glatt uh, was my mentor in Ottawa, and he owned uh, Trouble Clef Stores and also... Uh, he had Trouble Clef, uh, inter- uh, Trouble Clef Stereo Stores, well, I can't remember what they were called. Um, and uh, he also had concerts, Trouble Clef Concerts. And that was in conjunction with uh, Michael Cole, Concert Production International, right. and Donald K. Donald in Montreal. So they would book all these big acts in and bring them into Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto. And they would you know, be able to get good deals. And um, so anyway... Uh, through uh, Posterity Records, which was his label in Ottawa, and he had his own distribution, indie distribution company, um, we had a number one single in Canada called Baby in the Blues. And um, that was a lot of fun. And Joe Hall was doing very, very well. But at the same time, there was, you know, there was this fear that I've, I didn't understand at the time, but I've seen it in musicians and entertainers, and I've now seen it in all walks of life, engineers, programmers, business people, and that's the fear of success. Hmm. There are people out there who are doing what they want to do and will sabotage things as soon as they start to go right, as soon as things are starting to happen. And one of the people that I managed um, had that problem. And it made it very, very difficult for me, and I didn't really understand it. And um, that was through my 20s. And so when I reached 30, um, I had also been having successes in the computer world. I was presenting, I was writing and presenting papers around the world, um, well, North America and in Europe. Right. Um, and um, and I, was, I was doing very, very well and a lot of success. And I decided that, I'm doing really well, but I can do a lot better if I pick one. So when I was 30, it seemed like a pretty good time to make some changes. 
um, I decided I had to pick one. And so I picked the computer industry. And so I stayed with the computer industry until I was 47 when I kind of backed out of the computer industry and said, now I'll go do the other side. And so I miss from my, from age 30 to age 47, I don't know what happened in music because I just <laughs> completely. So when people talk about the tragically hip, I go, oh yeah. You start off talking about this phenomenon of people finding success and somehow destroying it. The, the decision to do, to go to computers as opposed to music, did it have anything to do with that or not related to that? There's a radio, right? I'll just nod my head. <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> uh, absolutely, it did. Um, I, was, I, I was getting scared that I was um, starting to waste my time because I was dealing with really, really talented people that should be going somewhere. And every time we sort of got close to doing it, it would pop back to you know something way lower than where we should be. And so... Um, and could you... Could you analyze that? Like, could you make sense of why? No. No, it wasn't until later when I saw it in the computer industry as well that I realized that it's fear of success. See, if you fail without doing anything, there's nowhere to fall. I mean, you just, you know, people don't even know you did it, right? Right. Um, you have a little bit of success and you fail. Well, you know, that's because it's really hard. But if you're successful and then fail, that's a long way to tumble down. And so some people actually say, I'm not going to risk that. Do you think it's a very conscious thing? Or do you think it's a subconscious thing? I think it's a subconscious thing, but it happens. And, and as I said, I've seen it in business. I've seen it <clears throat> in the computer world. And I've seen it in more people than one in the music industry and entertainment in general. Um, people... People are willing to go so far, but you need that. There's got to be something really special to push you over the top to risk everything. And that's what you're really doing is you're risking everything. When you create a company and, um, you know, one of the companies that, we, that I created, I, I created a company when I was in my 20s to do computer stuff, and it, it was just me. I was a consultant, and I couldn't really grow it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really sad. And then when I was 35, 30, yeah, 35, I started another company and I had a partner. And before long, we brought in a, a third person and um, the company grew. And then we have four people. And, um, and before you know it, we had 10 people and we were really successful. We were really lucky. We were smart. Um, and we had talent. But you have to have more than that. But it's only dawned on me that going that first venture and having a company to, to bring somebody else on board, you're doubling the size of your company. Mm -hmm. And you're losing control. And, you know, there's just so many things about it. But when you start with two, bringing in a third person is really easy. You know, it's really easy to bring in a third person because they just, like, are going to do what you guys want. And even going to four people, you know, um, well, that was only bringing in one more from the three, so that's not a big problem. By the time you get up to ten, you realize, geez, we just really grew a lot. Um, and so there, there is, everybody has that, even, you know, even I recognize that I have that problem of, you know, getting around um, misconceptions and self-limitations. 
I'm sure. I'm sure you've run into it every day. (laughs) 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 I mean, you've had a lot of success, I would imagine, with with your businesses. I I have. I've had quite. I've had quite a lot of success, and and people people sort of say that you know. um, Well, I, I I did some motivational speaking for a while because particularly in the music industry when I was starting, like when I moved out to Victoria originally. I don't know if you remember that. But um, um, people come to me and say, well, you need luck. And I, and I would say that there's no such thing as luck. In actual fact, there's bad luck, but there's no such thing as luck. Because in my mind, luck is when preparation and opportunity meet. And Bad luck is when opportunity comes and you don't have the opportunity, you haven't built to it, and so you don't even know the opportunity arose. So that, that's really bad luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and other, you know, bad luck is preparing and the opportunity not arising. That's bad luck too. But the actual good luck is preparing and then having the opportunity come by. And there's so many people in the music industry, particularly, who just don't prepare. And the opportunities come and they have no idea that they miss them. So at the age of 47, you decided to go... No, 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 no. Uh, well, at the age of 47, the decision, the decision was go back and do the, you know, do the other half. But not give up on the computers. I, well, I kept the ownership, but I, didn't get, I wasn't involved anymore. <laughs> okay. Because yeah. in some ways, some might argue that that might be a, an example of um, giving up on success and... Whatever, I'm kidding in that. But but what was the decision? What was the thinking that you had done enough in the computer world and you wanted to go back into the the second love of? Well, you know, there's the old joke: How do you make a million dollars in the music industry? Start with two. Yeah. Um, well, I started with enough money that I figured I could make a million dollars. So. <laughs> and, and did it work out? <laughs> Not so far. <laughs> but well, okay, so at that point, what was your goal in in starting a record company? When I started the record company, I had, um, I think I had two goals. One was um, to get immersed with music again. And the second was to have some hit music, to have, to have some hits. That's and were you able to do that? Well, I guess yes. you did, right? Yes, we yeah. did, yeah. We have. Um, we have a bit of a hit right now with Carl Wolf. Okay, so one of the reasons why I want to talk to you about, talk to you, was about the... the the industry today and in the time that you've been in music and out of music and back in music the world has changed drastically so if you say you have a hit record right now what does that mean how do you identify a hit record well a hit record um, is still probably being classified as some certification and the hit i'm talking about now is gold okay so let's talk about certification and this would be applicable to canada but can you define the certification in terms of whether it be sales or plays or streams. Can you give me the breakdown of that? Uh, the, the, official, um, the official classification has always been on sales. Um, gold used to be 50,000 units, and now it's 40,000. Um, I, I can see it coming down, but, but maybe not, because um, as w- when you figured it would be coming down, when you sort of thought the certification would come down, Digital sales started to go up. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The music industry was devastated. Um, by Napster? By Napster. <clears throat> um, there's like the 
you know, the genie was out of the bottle and the value of music started to tumble. Um, and that's sort of the root of it all now. Music has almost no value. Um, how much how much is a record? How much does a CD cost these days? Um, you know, we try to get, you know, if we can get anywhere between 7 and $10, we think we're being really lucky. Um, so for sale. At, sell. For sale. Okay. Per, per unit. I mean, you look at like minimum wage, you know, um, you're basically talking about um, a record being less than one hour's work, you know, based on, on minimum wage. In most parts of the country, it diff- differs from one place to the other, but approximately. When I was in my heyday of loving music, um, I would buy an album that would cost anywhere from three ninety nine to four ninety nine, and sometimes more. Mm-hmm. And I was earning minimum wage, which was a dollar fifteen an hour. So I had to work, you know, after tax and everything. I I had to work basically more than half a day to buy a record. And right. now you sit back and say. I can buy a record for less than an hour's work and that's too expensive because I can get it for free or I can get it as a stream for nine ninety nine a month. Right. So, so what does that mean? Well, you know, in business sense, in business terms, you're basically saying that there are new synergisms. There are new um, logical blocks for what, where money comes from, where it goes. Um, there are new paradigms for marketing and, you know, targets, but the reality is music lost its value. That's really what it boils down to. Music lost its value. As a person who's familiar with the technical world and who sees probably the world a little differently in that you hear things and you want to match them by octave or whatever but <laughs> so when, when Napster was going on or you know even the personal computer came out and, and the world was changing as a technical person who was in the computer industry how did you see that change and I don't know where you are in music when Napster happened I don't you probably weren't even in the music industry um, no, when, Ma- when, when Napster was really starting off, I was just thinking about getting back in, which, you know, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody could really guess no. what way it was going to end up, um, because I think a lot of people really believed that copyright laws would stand up and people would go to jail and people would be fined. Um, and the reality is that no government stood up for protecting the rights of uh, songwriters and musicians. And that's sad, you know? That's just totally sad. So you were talking about the 40,000 units for yeah. certification. Um, that's in sales. So that would be whether somebody bought the song at a record store or on iTunes. Uh, yes, that, see that as we were looking at the certification levels coming down, um, something happened, and that was Apple came along and started actually selling something that people used to get for free, you know, for a short while. Right. And it was attractive enough that people were buying it. And so rather than going down to, like, certifications going down to 30000 or 20000 uh CREA, which is now called Music, Music Canada, and RAA in the U.S., 
um, decided to add in the digital sales uh, with the physical sales. And so, so in your mind, is it any different to buy a single or an album um, at a store like HMV versus buying an album off of iTunes? Uh, no. Basically, not, at iTunes, you're probably paying nine ninety nine for the album. Um, and um, that's probably what you're going to pay at HMV as well. Uh, even though HMV, it costs more for manufacturing, shipping, packaging. And then as a record company, are you seeing more or less money because of iTunes versus HMV? Well, when iTunes started, uh, started um, their sales, um, we actually started to see more money coming back in because iTunes wasn't taking away from physical sales. It was taking away from free downloads. But then you get into this problem where, um, again, because music has no value, um, you get into this situation where, and I, I, I hear this often, I'm sure everyone does, um, why would I buy a whole album when there's only two good songs on it? Or, or even worse, there's only one good song. So you ask somebody when an album comes out, do you want to buy this? And they say, there's only one good song on it. You know, okay. So you're going to buy the song. Yeah, I'll buy the song. I'm not going to buy the album because there's only one good song on it. Okay. And that song was your single. So then a few months later, you put out a second single. You're going to buy this album. Why would I buy this album? There's only two good songs on it. And so people's equating of good songs is singles. And um, loss is the whole concept of music where you're in a studio and you're recording and you say, hey, we're going to do this song. Um, it's going to be a really neat song, but what we need is a foil to set it off. And so you're actually in the studio or planning to have a song that's actually introducing the song, that the, the next song. Right. And that disappears now. And uh, the whole concept of music on an album being a package as opposed to a best of or a bunch of non-related singles, that's, on, that's, that's gone. And so... Either the public have lost out on that. The public's lost out. I mean, can you imagine Dark Side of the Moon coming out today? What's the single? But one could argue that music industry started off with singles. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's kind of interesting that in the UK particularly, um, they would refer to a record as being the single. But in North America, it was more album-oriented than single, um, maybe a little more matched. But in the UK, definitely... Um, when the Beatles would say, we have a new record out, would always, that would be their single. But the difference there, of course, is that they were putting out songs with 13 and 14 songs on an album, and then Capital was cutting those down to 11 or 12, and then collecting all of the, you know, the extra ones and putting out extra albums to maximize their profits. Right. Those evil record company people. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, record companies are not necessarily the brightest and most honest uh, industries in the world. So going back to certification, we now have digital downloads and a physical copy. Now comes streaming. And I know that there's more than one version of streaming. There is many versions. But tell me about the numbers of streaming. Like how many streaming, how many streams equal a sale? In Canada at the moment, 150. So a song has to be streamed 150 times for that to equal one single sale. That's like correct. Like that's equivalent of buying a song for 99 cents or whatever. That's correct. 
And then same thing with the album. Is that the way? No, uh, streaming has no concept of albums. So it's all based on singles. And then, so that would be things like Spotify and RDO and whatever. Oh, God bless them, RDO. Um, Pandora, um, Apple, Google Play. There, there are so many. Um, it's just it's phenomenal how many uh, streaming services there are. Um, but yes, that's all of them lumped together. But, and this is the part that causes a whole lot of grief. Why, um, why does it take 150 streams to represent um, one sale? And the answer to that is controversial, to say the least. Um, one of the positions I take is, if I have an interest in a song, and over the period of a week, um, I listen to it on a streaming service, on-demand streaming service, like Spotify. Let's say I listen to it five times. Why is that not a purchase? That's, you know, not even close to being a purchase. But as soon as you say streaming is by people's interest and demand, what's the difference between owning it and just saying, oh, I'm going to play this now? There's none. And there really is no owning it if you're doing a streaming service. Nope, right? there's none. Because at one point, that service could be gone and you don't really have any physical copy of that. That's correct. In, except, in, for, except for uh, Apple. Apple have a way for you to actually have songs that are yours that are part of the streaming service. I think, does Spotify have that? That no. you can download some? They have download, yeah. They have a download thing. Does that count for anything different? Like, is that... No, I, d- I don't think that... No, it doesn't... It doesn't uh, yeah, they, they, sorry, Spotify, actually, if you download it, you actually do get um, a little bit more royalty for downloading it. And then, but, but the problem is that it's, it's a philosophical question. Is, is streaming replacement for radio or is streaming replacement for buying singles? Okay, but if we go back to the radio formula, and I'm not sure, I think this is different with digital radio, but there was no real accurate way of saying how many times it got played and what songs get royalties like not every single thing that was played on the radio was charted properly and then every single play was accounted for and the artist or the record company got paid any money for it is that correct um yes it was done by um filling in forms and um the more computerized radio stations got the more sophisticated the collectors got so in canada socan were looking for uh, computerized listings of, you know, playlists. Um, but then on top of that, there were other services, not necessarily SoCan, and they, they were late to the game. Um, and people know what SoCan is, I hope. Uh, In Canada, it would be the, the body the that collects money for on Performances, behalf of the yeah. yeah. Um, and um, Nielsen started putting together little boxes that sniffed the airwaves uh, for certain radio stations and could actually identify um, songs. And so that started quite a long time ago. But it was an expensive thing. And so um, to become a reporting station for, uh, you know, for BDS, which was Nielsen, um, um, your station was sniffed. And if but when you say sniffed, it doesn't sound like it's all-inclusive. Is that correct? It, no, because it only recognized the stuff it had fingerprint for. So when you put out a new record, you would send a copy of it um, 
to uh, to Nielsen, and then they would do a fingerprinting of it. But that meant that there was old stuff that played and didn't they didn't have fit fingerprints for and all that kind of stuff. But today, almost everything is fingerprinted. So I mean, that's come a long way. Um, <clears throat> and that would be what Shazam works on. Um, Soundhound. Uh, there's all kinds of them, but yes. So it would, you hear a song, it identifies what song that is. That's correct. Okay. And so that kind of started, you know, way back when for the radio stuff. And so they were doing half and half, probably of um, sniffing and and forms. And then uh, not that long ago, SoCan did a deal where they would actually get that information directly from BDS. So the and again. Probably in any statement, about half of what uh, is reported is sniffed, um, and about half is still coming from consensus forms. And then there's the CBC, which is a different process altogether. So, but it's quite possible that you might have a regional hit, or you might have a hit that gets played by maybe not hit the right word, but you might have a song that gets played more than your basic amount but it might not get recognized at all or you might have a song that's not that big of a hit but for whatever reason the numbers show that it's bigger than it is absolutely and that shows up mostly with community radio stations and college radio stations campus radio stations uh don't get sniffed and they get sampled um but the sampling doesn't take place on a daily basis for commercial radio stations either but for campus and community radio stations they might only get sampled twice a quarter or twice a season. and um, So you could have a heavy rotation song that in March and not get any recognition. Not get anything. Zero. Meanwhile, you could have like something that was just a flip that got you know played three times in one week. And that was the week that they were doing the, 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 the form, the survey. And you get a royalty check as if it was big for the whole quarter. But that's the way it's pretty well been right like, that, I mean, it is unfortunately yeah. that's unfortunately <laughs> the way they recorded songs so youtube is another thing which is a streaming service but it's also another way of earning money is that correct potentially yeah but remember it's owned by google and google isn't your friend <laughs> not your friend not my friend uh and uh the the lowest value for streaming in the of all the streaming services is is youtube so can you give me an example of what that means? Like how many streams do you have to have in order to earn a cent? Well, um, the, there aren't any real rules in place um, for, for YouTube. And so it's kind of like all over the place. Um, if you actually say, this is one of my songs, and I'll let you put ads on it, over it, then you get a higher royalty rate than if you say this is my song and I don't want any ads anywhere near it um, and um, so, and, then, and, and, I'm, and I'm really simplifying here because yeah, yeah. it's a very 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 complex thing but put it this way there are people who have you know half a million streams on on YouTube and you know they get $36 you know that's that's kind of like what happens so and, and then the, the ad that pops up there's sometimes the banner that pops up and and is that considered an ad? Yeah. And then sometimes there's an ad that plays, and then you can get out of it within five seconds. Is that considered an ad? Yeah. These are different kinds of ads. And whether you, if you get out in the five seconds, then it's a different thing again. But you get it's, something for that? Uh, you get something for that. Okay. So from a record company's point of view, and somebody who represents artists, um, 
what has streaming done to the industry? Oh, wow. You know, when you said you get into the record business, well, you think that that might mean music, but it means record keeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we last spoke, you had you were telling me that you're working on a program to check out the metadata and speaking like a real geek and you were excited about this program that you had created that scans through all these different reports. Yeah, so uh, like uh, to get a monthly report from Believe, which is collecting um, digital streaming information. Um, and there, there are several people who do that and collect on your behalf and, and send you statements and, and, and a check. Um, you know, I believe right now, Believe send us a monthly statement of about 8,000 detail records where the average, uh, the ad- a- average detail record uh, amounts to probably about a thousandth of a cent. So if it, I don't know if there's a comparison to the old days, but that one thousandth of a cent, if, if we were back in 1978 or something, is there any way to quantify what that would have been equivalent to? No. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> so, but okay. So you have an artist like David Gogo, who's who's one of your recording artists on your label. Like I would imagine that his income from record sales would be a, a small percentage of what it would have been ten years ago. Absolutely. I, you know, um, one of the things I'm involved in is uh, Cadence. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the old Maple Music, which is now Cadence and Cadence Music. Uh, that's a record label. Um, actually, it's a bunch of record labels. It's Open Road, which is country, from own records and uh, Cadence, and also distribution through Fon- Fontana North as our distributor. Well, I, I know that when you know I sit on the board, when you look at the uh, quarter quarterly forecasts, um, part of the thing that you're looking at is the new records coming out, and when it's an artist that you have had previously you're basically looking at a 10 to 15 or even 30% reduction. You know, you say, what did they do last year or last record? Whatever they did, you reduce that by, you know, 20%. And there's really no way you're making that up other than playing more gigs. Is that correct? Um, well, and, and being very prudent about going out and actually scraping as many of these streams as possible. Um, the major labels are doing okay because, you know, I think we're headed towards a trillion streams a month. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the power of big numbers is you take a thousandth of a cent and you multiply it by a trillion. You know, that would buy you like, you know, a lottery ticket or two. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, that that's, we're talking serious money. Right. So it's not like music... I can see- People with their slide rules out right now. Yeah, the slide rules. (laughs) An abacus. (laughs) Abacus, yes. Um, So it's not like music is, I know that it's devalued, but it's not like music is no longer being played. That in essence, by the streaming, people might be listening to music maybe more than they used to or definitely as much as they used to. I have no numbers to back it up, but I would say people are probably listening to as much music now as they did, as their parents did. 
Uh, but the reality is the royalties being paid would be just a fraction of what yep. the parents were. It's the fragmentation and so on and so forth. And, and the fact that, um, you know, when we first got to the point where the graduating class from grade 12 high school had gone through their entire schooling without ever thinking that uh, downloading would cost them a cent. Like everybody. So when we got to the point where Napster was out for 12 years, um, what value does music continue to hold? Um, and, and, you know, people, they grasp at straws. You know, people grasp at, hey, look at vinyl. Vinyl just went up 200%, you know. Yeah. And realistically, what is vinyl sales like? Oh, rounding errors. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it is, but but I mean, if it's we not were like say, printing out tens of thousands of vinyls, they're doing runs of five hundred, a thousand, two thousand, or whatever. Oh, uh, people people are doing two hundred, and you know, and, and and still have a hundred after they after they sell them. You know, um, vinyl is uh, you know there are people who are really into vinyl, and it's a collector's thing. I heard somewhere, and this is just. I might be wrong, but I heard somebody saying that half of all the vinyl records sold never get played. I heard that too. Did you? Yeah. They just like are collector's items and that's it. Oh, you know, uh, Fierce Panda in the UK, um, we sell out every vinyl pressing that we do. And I bet you none of those get played. How many would you press? 400. Okay. That's in England. The population's a bit bigger than Canada. Um, but, you know, there are collectors in the UK who have collected every record released by Fierce Panda. And if you miss one, you know, <laughs> your collection just became useless, right? <laughs> so it's a, great, it's a great thing. You know that when you put stuff out, every collector is going to buy it. So from a record company point of view, I mean, you obviously got into music and the record business because of your love of music. At this point, how do you view... The music industry and, and your love of music. It's a different challenge. Um, the, and the challenge is um, the challenge is one of uh, immense interest to me because it's technology. Mm-hmm. And it's more than just technology. It's computer technology. It's communications. And you got to figure that's getting into my wheelhouse. Right. And so I, I'm, pretty, you know, I'm pretty excited at times about things, um, you know, doing as much as I've been doing with metadata. Um, and, and if you could explain metadata a little bit. I know it's a tag for all these different things like videos and music, but if you could explain in layman's term what metadata is. Well, the simplest way of putting it is metadata is everything that ex- excluding the music itself. So um, the metadata would be the, the title, the catalog number. There are more numbers then you can shake a stick at their swc numbers isrc numbers um there are um, numbers associated with uh, publishers with uh, record labels um there are um, these are internationally recognized numbers i should point out um and and so they actually help with uh, figuring out see the big problem when you have a trillion streams in a, a, a month and and it's a problem that the major labels don't want to fix, is um, who, who should that money go to? Mm-hmm. And it's the metadata that actually figures out who the money should go to. And um, 
the worse that situation is, the more it goes into the fluff fund of the major labels. And that goes actually to the designated area called the bottom line. It doesn't get paid to anybody. We couldn't identify who, who should get this, so we'll keep it. So if a musician comes to you and says, Michael, I want to record my album, and I want to get into the music industry, what would be the best advice you could give them? Um, write good music. Um, that's the first thing. I mean, a lot of people come to us with music that is just kind of like, oh, yeah, that, you know, you, you're very, I'll tell you, uh, we have a very small office in Victoria, and um, we have a box. And uh, in this box, uh, there is basically what anybody around the office who has a, like a spare 10 minutes or 20 minutes goes and picks up a demo that came in and will listen to it. And then there's this box that's labeled junk. And, <laughs> and uh, they end up sort of in there. And one day this guy walked into our office and said, um, hi, my name is blah, 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 blah. I sent you a demo. I was just wondering if you guys had a chance to hear it. And the box that was sitting there, his record was on the top of the junk box. And the person who was talking to him had their foot on it, trying to push it behind a door. <laughs> so it can be a bit embarrassing at times. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, from a business point of view, because I often think a lot of musicians don't think in terms of business. They're too busy writing songs, learning their craft, trying to get gigs and whatever. But what should they be aware of in terms of understanding the business and knowing what they should be looking for? As opposed to, yeah, I just make CDs. Like, I, you know, I've heard musicians ask or talk about whether it's even worth making CDs anymore for the cost. And, you know, if they're going to spend anywhere from ten dollars to $30,000 for the CD, they're probably never going to, you know, a lot of them are never going to see that money back. So what would you tell musicians that they should know about the business of royalties or streaming or well that's a that's a loaded that's a loaded question actually because it really depends on where in their career mm -hmm. the, the person is because that question comes up from artists in all levels and uh, there's the ones who are sort of like what happened tell me what should i do right uh, and then there's the ones that are just getting into it for the first time because um, i think in some ways the people who actually made money in the past it must be just like shocking to them oh yeah it is. It is. You know, you, you, I mean, there were great examples, I mean, of, of people who, I mean, artists would have their heyday and move, you know, and, and fall from it. And that's always sort of been the case. But, you know, sometimes things get hastened along, even when they're really highly regarded. People starting out, I think, is what you were really getting at. Yeah. And for them, it's learn about the industry um it's not about sheer talent it's about craft and um learn about what the different people within the music industry do it is an industry like harp on the fact that it is an industry so what do people do what do what do publishers do uh what do um uh, publicists do what you know what what do marketing and social media marketing people do what what do record labels do we uh i remember there's a out west there's a sort of a semi-famous guy and he he had a record out and it did really well 
And uh, he came into my office and sat down and said, well, before he put the record out, he said, I don't need a record label. And I said, no, you probably don't. Because nobody actually needs a record label. I mean, that, I hate to say it as a record label, but nobody needs a record label. What we do, I mean, anybody can do. But I think in some ways it, there's a bit of credibility to a record label that self-produced albums might not have. Well, there is. Um, but there's also the fact in this, this gentleman... Um, he went out and had this record, and he, he promoted it and worked it, and it was quite successful. Um, and then he called up like uh, two years later and said, I want to talk to you about putting my record out. And I said, okay. And he came into my office, sat down, and, he, and I said, so why do you need a record label? And he said, and I said, because you can do everything. And he said, yeah, I did, but it takes all my time. <laughs> I don't have time to like pro- to practice i don't have time to play i don't have time to write it takes all my time yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so you know are you willing to pay us the money that a record label is going to make because of the time we're putting in that you don't and that's what people don't understand it's really a simple process i mean you you can be your own publisher you can be your own record label you can be your own publicist you can be your own everything the real question is what do you want to do in life do you want to be a publicist or do you want to be touring and promoting your material or selling your material um, from a stage and um, if you if performing is what you want to do then buy you know find the team and pay for the team to actually do the work makes sense you know um, but you got to learn what the industry is you got to learn what the different people do you have to learn why you need you know why you need a publicist and why do I need to have somebody doing placing sinks for me for example what is a sink what you know um, I wash my hands in sinks <laughs> you know why do I need I don't have to pay anybody to do a. you know I, I'm being flippant but I hope you understand that I'm saying that you know you have to understand what it's about or else you're never going to have any success my final question to you, after all these years of being involved in the music industry, do you still have the same passion for music? No. No. All right, thanks. No. <laughs> no, um, because, you know, when, when you're doing it from the industry side, um, the music has a tendency to become a bit of a commodity. Mm-hmm. And you can't have the passion about the commodity. I have passion about individual projects and I have passion about individual, um, you know, songs or whatever. Um, but not like I did in, in the old days because in the old days it was, everything was brand new. Everything was, you're testing the waters and, um, and, um, there was a sparkle to it. Um, I'm an old fart now and, um, you know, the sparkle, is something that you have to generate yourself and the people around you have to uh, be part of that. And, um, and and it's kind of interesting because I'm going to split that answer down to no, I'm not as passionate as I was. I'm still passionate, but not as passionate as I was. Um, but older artists, I may be a little less passionate for their music than younger ones. We have a, an artist, uh, we have a band called The Velveteens, they're like 20, 21 years old, and they have that sparkle. They have that desire. You know, they, they're, they're the sharks looking around for blood, and it's fun dealing with them. We, 
our Christmas party, one of the guys came, and uh, it was amazing how people, you know, all caught on to him because it was the energy and um, just funness um, just percolating from him. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, we have an artist on our label, uh, David Vest, who's 71, and for a 71-year-old, he sparkles, mm-hmm. but he's 71. <laughs> uh, great piano player. Great piano player. A great. I mean, he's great at everything. Um, I, actually, I love having lunch with him because every time I, I have lunch with him, he tells me about something new that he's done. You know, it's kind of like uh, you know. Okay, so you started. You know, you you were, you were playing and you know places where uh, guns were coming out and people were being shot around you and you would, you know, hide behind the piano and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's kind of neat. You should write that. Oh, no. I got my PhD in English literature when I was teaching and I would stay away from things like, you don't have a PhD in English literature? <laughs> you know, and it was kind of, it's always like, you know, there's something new coming out. Uh, he's just absolutely amazing. Anyway, um, the answer to your question is, I don't generate the passion for it, but I absorb it when it comes my way. Well said. Thank you very much for this time. You gave me an insight into the numbers and just how screwed up the industry is. (laughs) (laughs) And I appreciate that. Well, No, more like the challenges that that the musicians are facing these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.